And then eventually I started digging more into print. I found it had this amazing vernacular historically of how it encompasses everything. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really does help. Or just tell a fellow friend about the podcast and maybe they'll enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month and that helps keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merchandise as well as access to our bonus content. Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are chats for the printmaker's printmaker. They talk about color theory, materials, chemistry, and lots of nuts and bolts down-to-earth professional advice. How do you keep your practice dynamic after you graduate? How do you save money on supplies? What's your favorite paper? So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. And if you want to save a little cash while still supporting the show, you can sign up for a yearly subscription and receive 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know that these products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up Speedball's team of demo artists. Artists like Tess Doyle, a freelance artist and designer working in Houston, Texas. Tess works primarily in printmaking, drawing, and mixed media. Inspired by pop culture, personal idols, victims, and everyday encounters, she creates an array of figurative and symbol-heavy imagery. Her drawings and prints often contain bizarre narratives and pastiche. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade from exciting artists like Tess, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Mitch Mitchell, assistant professor of print media at Concordia University in Montreal. We'll talk about the process of printmaking as product, labor both physical and emotional, taking on printmaking projects that require thousands of hours to finish, and starting his tabletop printing press company to help connect printmakers with equipment during lockdown and COVID. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get to work with Mitch Mitchell. Hi, Mitch. How's it going? Good. How are you, Miranda? I'm really good. I'm really good. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good I, to talk to somebody from across the sea. Yeah, I know the the international print family. Hey, like this is uh, always a, a really exciting part of what I get to do here. Yeah. So I was actually introduced. I think I just found part of what you do through the ye old Instagram, um, and then I actually got an anonymous tip to the uh, Hello Print Friend email account that you would be someone who would be lovely to talk to. And so I did uh, a little bit of research then and looked at your website and looked at your work. And I was really, really excited about what I saw and um, 
was just super happy to have the opportunity to talk with you about the wonderful work that you're making and um, your printing presses as well, which I'm sure we'll get to, to sort of both sides of what you do at some point in this chat. So um, thank you, uh, Anonymous Tipster, I guess, <laughs> um, for, for pointing yeah, me in this Thank direction. you very much, Anonymous Sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a bit familiar with you because I've, I always do the, the research leading up to these interviews, but how would you describe for our listening fans out there who you are, where you are, and what you do? Oh, that's, um, I am uh, I'm a print-based artist. I work primarily with the forms of prints and histories of prints, both uh, past, uh, present, and future. Uh, I'm much more going, my practice has gone more into the materiality of print and the, the process of print versus sort of the technique and the sort of the narrative histories with a technique drive holds in itself, but more focused on the drive of the the making and the, the labor-based process to tell these sort of like narrative stories. Um, but now I'm located in Montreal, Quebec in Canada. I'm originally from the United States, from uh, Illinois, um, uh, both Springfield and Chicago region. And uh, I've been just sort of traveling the world for quite – uh, majority of my life now sort of taking in as much as I can about life and image and the graphic space that we live in to sort of find ways of telling a story, whether it be curious or oblique or whatever it may be, to sort of add to the lexicon, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you grew up in Illinois. What mm-hmm. was your sort of early exposure to art and your early interfacing with making like uh my i i was very fortunate to have parents that was uh my father was a was worked for the states and but he also he he had a he's a uh, gentleman of many hats Mm. one he he, uh, worked for the states in small business and community affairs and for majority of my life and he's now uh, luckily retired from that business and uh, but at the same time he's also a, a landscape architect and um, so I grew up around his pencils and his paper and his schematic designs and uh, his basically his drafting board that his grandfather had made him whenever he uh, left uh, school uh, when he was uh, in his 20s so I grew up around all that looking at things and then I was very fortunate in the sense that both my parents would uh, take us kids to um, art galleries and museums, no matter what it was. It it didn't have to be a museum specific to one culture. It was like, you're going to see everything. Mm. And because it's all of value, no matter what it is. And they never said, like, this is more important than this. It was, this is just important. Mm. And having grown up with that... Um, it sort of just fed me in a way where when I was a kid, I would, I think I I had this obnoxious amount of energy to draw and to make things. Uh, I think a little bit of a childlike ADHD or whatever, maybe Mm -hmm. if you can call it that. And, um, so that sort of fed the, the furnace, if you will. And they never said, no, you shouldn't do this. You should focus on being a, a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, they said, like, here's more paper, here's more pencils. I can't believe you can draw a straight line. Mm-hmm. Just go for it. And, uh, I mean, because there were, you know, uh, 
they were just enamored by it, I guess. And just to follow your, to follow where, where your, your, your soul goes in a sense. Mm. Um, and then I also, uh, I, I had a good amount of friends and community around me that were also musicians and, um, had lived really extensive lives beyond just their houses. Like had been in, had been in World War II, had been in Vietnam, had been musicians for jazz musicians, and um, like like just. Uh, I mean, if you if you've ever been to Chicago, you'll know that it's just a lively, lively, boisterous city where everybody wants to tell their story, mm-hmm. and so it's it's part of that heart, uh, if you will, of uh, the Midwest, where it's a community of, you know, immigrants and the the post-slavery movement and everything and all that stuff that sort of built the whole, the entirety of the Midwestern culture that kind of I grew up around. So, yeah. Yeah. And then where does printmaking come into your story? Uh, it, It kind of started two distinctly different ways. One was at school when I was at, um, in um, university, when I was doing a double major for engineering and arts, and then obviously when you go to art school, you're like, "Here's painting and sculpture," right? And those like the big, the big A art, you know, in mm-hmm. North America. But then I um, I heard about printmaking, but I didn't want to take it because at the same time I was working. I, I used to, in high school. I used to work for a um, a silkscreen shop, and it was one of those old school, all labor, all by hand. You're, mm. you're pulling like you know 800 to 2,000 runs a day by you know no machines. You're you're the machine, and I was like, I can't do that anymore. Mm. So I was kind of hesitant about it, but then I had a professor who um, was quite amazing, and she was a painting professor by L.J. Douglas, and she's still in, um, in Normal, Illinois, and she still teaches there, and um, and she was uh, absolutely amazing because she said uh, she was sort of like was breaking down the way I work and more of a mechanical nature and. And it was sort of like, you should try prints. And so I did. And it was, um, I was I, and I absolutely loved it. It was something I didn't expect. So then I went into, I did an intaglio class with um, an, a, a professor who's now in, uh, back in Canada, by Sean Caulfield. And then I had a, an amazing, um, who's an amazing uh, instructor and sort of opened my eyes mm-hmm. to what print can be versus what it is. And then I had a litho professor who was um, uh, one of the elder litho professors of the age, uh, um, Jim Butler, who was this amazing sage of a person who could like, he could just on the fly figure out anything mm. that was happening to a stone and like would make the mis- the mysterious magical yeah. and uh, you know but he'd also challenge you at the same time he was very much an uh, a very strict and old school lithographer where it's all about technique and procedure but then he'd also throw monkey wrenches into sort of the the, the pedagogy if you will and sort of say like okay you're gonna make a litho but you're not gonna use a litho press and so on. Mm-hmm. So just like, just have, make it more conceptual, have fun with it and so on. So that was sort of like the thing that sort of opened my eyes to what print could be. 
Um, yeah, so that was my that was the beginning of it, and from there I just absolutely fell in love with it. I I obnoxiously I had one professor say I was a very obnoxious student because I had I graduated <laughs> with a painting BFA, uh-huh. and uh, but my whole show was it was printmaking and glass sculpture. <laughs> So yeah, I remember, I remember my, my opening, my, my BFA show, and he came up to me and said, "Like you're such an obnoxious student." Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta bend and break those rules, hey? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and and from there, I just sort of, uh, I just kept going with it. Uh, I just, I, I fell in love with the process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so now I think that's a really nice way to to segue into your current practice because as you were bending and breaking the rules of being a painting major, I think one could say that perhaps you do the same as a print-based artist as well. And so sort of what I mean by that is that you're not following the it's a multiple, they all look the same, and they go under glass, and they, you know, like, then you addition them, you know, that's not really how printmaking manifests in the work that you do. Um, So I guess I'd maybe just invite you to kind of describe your practice more broadly as you do a lot of installation work, a lot of sculpture work, but then also invite you to let us know how printmaking fits into that and why you think it's important to use that as opposed to any other medium to create your your end goal yeah uh, that's good um i think it has to do with a bit going back to how i grew up and saying that uh, everything's important like my mom and my mom would say um um, and that, you know, one of the things that I found to be very enlightening about the process from the very beginning of print was um, not so much the, the, the effect of ink on paper through the press on via an intaglio plate or litho or, you know, relief. It was more just like this performative process from mm. beginning to end. Like when you buy the paper, you see the person who's ringing up the the dollar amount, and then they take your cash, which is also made of a linen-based paper, a cotton-based paper, mm. and then you you unfold it, and then you, and it, which is also a multiple, it's an addition, and it's an intaglio, and then U.S. currency. Uh, if anybody's not listening who is not in the u.s mm-hmm. and then um and then from there they take your paper and they roll it up and then they put a piece of protective paper around it with a rubber band it becomes this like it, it like really you because when you buy the paper it comes in this <clears throat> you buy it in this flat file it's super flat and it's pristine mm-hmm. but immediately as soon as you take it to the cash register you're 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 very carefully gingerly holding it because you know it's like you know a value but then they take it and they're kind of rough with it and uh-huh. they roll it up as tight as they can be and they just like they, they, they treat it like currency their 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 version of currency where they kind of just like here you go thank you very much goodbye yeah i found that to be really compelling how in, in comparison or in the um, on a polar level when we I'm a, I'm a professor at, uh, at Concordia University. I teach print, so I'm always teaching the value of materials and the, and the process. So at, at the same time, I have to like go against that, and in my own practice, I'm like I have to bend and break those rules. So that, I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to was there was this other side of the material surface that you can always damage it, and mm-hmm. you can find the 
you can find the soul in the wrinkle or the crease that you could not find by illustrating it on the stone or whatever it may be. Um, so that was like the impetus where it kind of started and started gestating. And then eventually when I, I started looking, getting more in depth and digging more into print, I found it had this amazing vernacular historically of how just it, it encompasses everything. Like every culture has prints, whether it be arts and, and, and the perception of art within print is very small comparatively to the graphic image as a culture and, and as a whole, because you have currency, you have documents, you have, uh, you know, visas, you have, you know, everything in your life has been printed on checks. Um, you know, um, I don't know, you name it around you, mm-hmm. mail, it's been printed on. So I realized that there was this cultural inheritance to the surface beyond just the big A art form that was a, that I could just mine and mm-hmm. sort of dig into and find a volume that is beyond me as a, uh, culturally, but also that I share in it because I am a part of that conversation in some way. So that was sort of like the beginning stages of that. Um, so when I broke out of that, I realized, well, what is my story? What can I do with this? And then I found, and I started sort of thinking about the object and the space and how we move around cities and the world through the graph. And we we're always looking at the graphic image. That was say, like, well, what if I make objects? What if I make? And we have cereal boxes that are printed Mm -hmm. we have amazon boxes coming to us every day that are printed and then well there's a whole wealth of we're we're surrounded by print but we just don't talk about it yeah and we don't think about it that way you know like when you get your amazon box you're not like look at the nice registration on this you know you never (laughs) engage with it that way right yeah exactly exactly and we we kind of we kind of throw it away it's throwaway culture and I found that to be uh, these really polar opposites that I actually found very attract, um, very attracted to. And then I'm also very just attracted to just narrative space and how we describe things and historically as well as on a contemporary level and um, how we look at and examine these things that we all culturally share and are, and are responsible for, but we don't responsibly talk about mm. because there's a lot of darkness that goes um, with it as well as beauty. So, um, so that, that was, so, so a lot of my work has to, has to sort of like, it's a long way of saying that my work, I, I, I really think about how the graphic image and the substrate that it's on can help sort of narratively dictate where the audience can go into the work, not lead them, but just sort of, sort of open the door into the work so they can bring their own baggage with that. And so, but, but still have a bit of an inkling or a, uh, point of view that I'm trying to drive them through with that. So, yeah. Definitely. And I think also you've talked about, you know, labor-based process and the way that labor is important to your work. And I could, I love how when you're starting to talk about print, you know, you're not just starting in the studio because, you know, I, so I soak my paper, you know, that's often like sort of where people think about the labor of printmaking starting, but you, you know, really take it back to that first 
moment of of physicality with the materials, which is when you you go into an art store and you pick out your piece of paper and you exchange money, which I love. Like, of course, you point out is also print, but then of course, money also represents labor basically mm-hmm. as well you know there are these notes that that um hold this value of you know an, an hour's worth of work or, or or whatever it is so um and so it kind of starts there and just continues on you know until well really just it, it indefinitely um sort of truly like as long as the the object exists so I'm uh, often really excited to to talk about the way labor shows up in the context of art, and particularly in the context of print, um, because the word is you know laden with a lot of associations with. Uh, let's see, I don't know how to put it. So it's like when you say when people say labor, you'll often kind of think of a laborer, you know, maybe someone who is mm-hmm. working with their hands and maybe someone who's doing more blue-collar jobs. But, of course, that is what artists are as well um, in many, many, many media, of course, you know, that is actually just someone who is taking materials and creating something, someone who is problem-solving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a wonderful interview um, a couple days ago with Stacey Lynn Waddell, and she was talking about how she grew up on a farm and how she thinks that's what made her an artist was seeing people saying like, okay, like how do I create something based with the materials that I have? And that's just, of course, what artists do. And that's the labor, right? So mm-hmm. um, I am always excited about to talk about it because I like it as a subject. And then also um, Tim, who you'll be talking to later on today with Shop Talk, that was a huge part of his thesis. You know, he comes from a factory town with uh, factory workers in his family and that idea of labor intersecting with printmaking specifically. So mm-hmm. long lead up to my question, which is just, <laughs> I love this topic. How does it affect your practice? How does it show up in what you do? This idea of labor and creating, labor and printmaking, labor and process, all of that great stuff. It's Yeah, that's a good question. It's, I think it's a massive – it's, it's yes. been slowly <laughs> moving towards that my work. I've uh, been, been kind of uh, shying away with it from it for a long period because I do come from a, a – um, sort of a blue collar family and sort of the history with like, you know, coal mining in the family and all that. So, um, mm-hmm. but like it's, it wasn't until this, uh, the more recent large body of work that I did, uh, I will meet you in the sun where I really just said like, Hey, I'm going to go for it. I, I, I had a very, I was very fortunate to have a curator that really responded to the work said like, I don't think you're going hard enough in the work and I was like all right I'm gonna go hard now Mm. and that's when I decided to like take labor as an identity towards the psychological uh, term as a as a as a point of reference for psychological inner turmoil that an individual or individuals may be going through that um sort of like you see it you think oh this is beautiful but then you really look at it and you respond to it like okay this is madness because there's so much (laughs) of it and you realize it and it, one individual hand made all of this, and mm. and it kind of goes on the, that this weird this, this that long joke that a lot of um, um, we had we had in art school where it's like you know I hear a lot of the painters that would be like oh man I I, I don't want to take print because you have to do additions mm-hmm. and like I can't five 
You know, it's, it's, it's insane. So with that body of work I did, uh, there's one piece I, I, I presented where I, had, I made 50,000 handmade boxes. That oh, my all gosh. The, uh, yeah. They're all uh, – it's, it's about five years due. Oh, my That's gosh. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they're all individually uh, silk screens, uh, monotype silk screens, two layers each. And then I hand cut them out and then hand crease them for the bone folder and then hand glue them. Um, and there's 50,000 of them. And um, so I mean, the idea, because when you look at it, it's beautiful. You, like the, first, the response is like, it's colorful. It's beautiful. These boxes, they're like, like toys. You have all these sort of like childlike qualities or this you want to like you literally they're very tactile you want to play with them and uh but when you get close to them you realize that they're all individual they're all unique but then you there's that sort of that sort of step back that happens a mental step back happens when you realize oh no this person's insane what what, what (laughs) cause a person to do this and there's that sort of mental sort of like fatigue that that kicks in where it's like there's a brand new identity to it that's not it's no longer about you know beauty it's no longer about sort of the um, something that is just you know visually looks good there's a turmoil that sort of in, is embodied in it mm-hmm. and um so like the that piece it was it literally was the, the impetus for it was um psychology of what my grandparents had to go through mm. and the idea that they they, they had both went to um, my grandfather had been through world war ii he had been a uh, part of the the um, unbeknownst to him at the time but he was a radar operator for the hiroshima bombing and he had to keep that secret and uh, he died with it because uh, it, it was classified so he had to keep that secret and and he died with that secret but i always imagine like you know working in the coal mines sort of like over his table saw and all that stuff just like what the scots irish back home would say like you, you just work out the devil like if mm, you if you mm-hmm. don't want to think about it, you, just, you just work you just yeah. work and it's something that i kind of i always heard growing up is like if something's bothering you just work it out just sort of just go and do something until you stop, you stop thinking about it mm. So, yeah. so the idea of labor as something that's very physical, but it's also very psychological and yeah. something that we don't really want to address sometimes, um, not only the physical fatigue, but the mental fatigue that mm-hmm. can be far more dangerous, if you will. So, yeah. 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 So I've got... I've got I was just writing notes furiously as you're as you're talking there. <laughs> but I just have to say, like, I think my first reaction was just like, eat your fucking heart out, Beeple. Like, come on. Like <laughs> See, I made made, yeah. actually made fifty thousand boxes. Come on. Like, so that's my first reaction, but that's you know, I don't have to get into my my personal biases about ntfs but um, <laughs> but also yeah. uh you know this idea of of that kind of repetitive labor which can be both healing and harming is super interesting yeah. because i know that the more that we understand trauma and how it works, the more that we're coming to understand that it lives in your body. You know, there's the this kind of famous, wonderful book, The 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 Body Keeps Score, you know, which was sort of the, I think, who first brought that idea to, to lay people that, um, you know, it's if you've gone through something, 
Um, it, it li- you know, almost literally lives in your body and you have to get it out of your body in order to be on the other side of that. And that can be through, you know, through something like labor. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a really wonderful documentary about Buck Brenneman, the horse whisperer guy that it was all based on. And, you know, he came from an exceptionally um, physically abusive household with a, a mm-hmm. alcoholic father. And he ends up going to this um, family, sort of a foster family. And the first thing that happens, and this is, you know, cowboys in Colorado and, you know, the 19. 19- 60s, 70s, you know, this is far before, you know, somatic healing sound baths, you know, came into anyone's existence. (laughs) But what his foster father did was he took him, you know, out into a field and he handed him a pair of leather gloves. And he said, this boy needs to work. Like he just was like, this is what he needs. And so it reminds me of that, this idea that, um, you know, when before we had these sort of sophisticated words and ways to explain what was actually happening in processing trauma, people still knew that. And, and people who labored knew that, you know, he was out there fixing fences with his his foster father and his foster father knew that this was healing because this is what he had done and so Mm -hmm. you know i think it's it's a really interesting crossover i think between um that blue collar work that work with your hands and then this thing that i feel like the um the kind of i guess like liberal elite for lack of a better term is sort of just trying to finally discovering now is it like oh like that movement that work actually is essentially a part of the healing as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and so for you to take on something of this scale, it's just so fascinating in the sense that there's there's no shortcut to that. Like you've just you've chosen to take something on where the only way to get to the other side is to put your body through the paces and to put your body through the labor, which of course then also makes it a form of performance art in its own way or, or sort of embodied yeah. art as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's where my, with that work, it was sort of my stepping stone where I just said, okay, I just got to go for it. And my, my latest, uh, I mean, it generally takes me for depending on, the body of work about four to six years to like mm. complete a body of work because it's so labor intensive and extensive and I, I kind of keep it a secret so I can just I can just focus on doing it and then also it just comes out and just I just release it to the, mm. to the wild if you will mm-hmm. and my latest work has been much more um, I, I've been exhibiting uh, not hiding the labor I've, I've been really wanting to actually present the labor as like that as, as a, uh, the performative act in situ with the work itself and because it is just is justified it's it is important it helps tell a story it should not be hidden yeah because it adds something else to it maybe um positive or negative depending on how you want to look at it and so on so it's um there's one piece I did during that show with, that was I was remaking a hot air balloon out of uh, a quilted paper. And um, it was just like people would be so confused about it. Mm. But it was also at the same time they were thought they found to be very blissful mm. at the same time. So it was, it was like this. I'm, I'm always playing with the, the darkness as well as the lightness, mm-hmm. um, the poetics of, of, of those spaces. Yeah. I'm finding myself more... It's more human, if you will. Yeah. Can you um, can you sort of say more more about that in terms of 
the the darkness. Will you go into the darkness, Mitch? That's why it's like no, I, <laughs> let's uh, go into the darkness. Let's go. Let's do this. We we got we got thirty minutes left in this interview. Let's like, let's yeah. dive. But can you? Uh, I'm just I'm intrigued by by you sort of saying that because um, it's it's just an interesting way to to think about it. And so if, I'm hoping you can flush it out a little bit more so I can understand it. Yeah, I think the darkness for me is sort of uh, the poetics of it is something that, I mean, it's that it's something that we ne- not necessarily want to talk about sometimes, even though it's, I mean, we look at graphic imagery, graphic media, and it's, it's like shoved in our faces, but we always sort of we conflate it to the, oh, this is just sort of like politics or this is just something that's happening now. It'll go away. Mm. And by putting myself or it doesn't necessarily have to be me as a performer. I can like even hire people to do it as like another form of labor. And the consequence of labor is that it really it forces a viewer to say, okay, there's an active participant not only to myself as a viewer, but there's someone in, in front of me who is presenting something that looks somewhat mundane, mm. uh, similar to the ordinary, but it is elevating this task because it is so surreal and so sublime and weird that it makes me really question my own sort of space within that reality. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of like, again, like, you know, quilting. I mean, I, I have a grandmother and a mother who quilts and, um, and and everybody knows everybody knows what quilts are. It's 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 this vernac this this form that we all understand. But then as soon as you disrupt it with something that's very fragile and something that is taught and and sort of tawdry and like you wouldn't expect like paper and, mm. and you're not using thread, you're actually using staples, which is very brutal and very annoying because you want to hear the clunk 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 yeah. clunk. And then, and then if you have a, if you have a pickup microphone on that, and then it's gone through a mixer, it, it, it helps elevate that further. It becomes much more abusive in a way. Yeah. And it and that, that and then that also highlights, in some degree, both the the directness of the ridiculousness of that labor and mm-hmm. why are you doing this is stupid, mm-hmm. but also there's a romantic quality of just like you know, this sort of mental fortitude of wanting to get this thing done. So there's that weird balance, counterbalance that happens within that performative act. And um, and, and, and it's also the way I do it is I'm not doing it so that's directly in your face, like saying this is performance. It's right. more kind of like, what am I seeing right now? I don't know. Mm. And it makes it a little more mysterious and more, um, I, I, and in some ways for me, dangerous because people can just walk away and, and yeah. not think much of it afterwards, which I actually kind of like. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. It speaks to mundane. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it's also, I think, sort of so smart too, just in the sense of once you put the label on a work of art as performance art, it's it's just going to go off the deep end, you know, like the, 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 the assumptions that people will bring to it are going to be so uh, strong and so uncontrolled by you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I will sometimes, uh, there's a lot of, uh, let's see, am I going to, how can I say this without offending every performance? Art? <laughs> like, just offend, just, just offend. offend. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, I like someone says performance art 
And I always think of in my head this phrase, the roly poly people, because it's just always like somebody in spandex just like rolling around on the ground, like on top of other people. Mm-hmm. Like that's like all I think of. And and so that baggage and that association, you know, they'll they'll bring to that. So as if if you have this extreme labor in the history, like imbued into the fabric of your physical objects, which is a huge part of the finished outcome, but willingness to have that go unseen is super Mm -hmm. brave and really fascinating. But at the same time, I think it reflects so well the labor that we interact with every day that is unseen. You know, this, this Mac computer that I'm recording this on, I am not thinking about the people in factories in China who put on the glass screen to this thing and wiped it down and put it in a box. You know, that the labor of every object we interact with, for the most part, goes unseen. And art, you know, things that are labeled art get to live in this special place where we're invited to think about the labor, where every other Mm -hmm. object uh, we're not. And so you're like almost letting your art objects that represent countless hours of labor to like live in that space with other objects is really really fascinating and and like i said just like brave for an artist to do i think yeah well Mm. yeah and there's there's something always that i find i don't want to say magical but find mysterious in that the objects that surround us are beautiful but then at the same time all the hands that touch them before you you don't know their stories Mm. Mm-hmm. And that is some, a mystery that is both beautiful as well as kind of scary because, you know, you hear about everything like the iPhone and we, we use iPhone, we use phones all day long now, but you hear about the stories of of the, the companies making them in China where they're having put like suicide nets up around the buildings because they're working them to like crazy hours to get them out there. And laborers are just, you know, jumping off the buildings because they just can't do it anymore. So it's like this, it's this weird sort of scenario around the the object that I, I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly attracted to mm-hmm. as, as a narrative, as a social narrative. And I think with the work I'm wanting to think about and present is sort of that duality, that, that sort of, that sort of the, the consequence of the, of the mm-hmm. conversational back and forth that we, we need to have more of sometimes or... Or just present it in a way that people can actually look at for once in reality. Yeah. 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 And as the art historian, I can't help but think about it in this context of what as well is that when you look at the history of of art in the West and in in Europe and the Americas, which is the, the training I got, you know, art started to take on this sort of privileged status because of the labor that went into it, you know, because you see these early, like, let's say, like, late 15th century, really beginning early modern period, Renaissance, um, Northern European painters like Jan van Eyck, who just would do Mm -hmm. this mind bogglingly detailed painting. Um, You know, the, the one that always comes to mind is the Arnolfini portrait, which I recommend anyone Googling if you're not familiar with it, and you look at it, and it's incredible. 
And then you learn it's like 12 inches tall, <laughs> you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> like yeah, all of yeah, that yeah. detail. So, so it really is these, these feats of labor that no one else could do, you know, besides the Arnolfini brothers. And so you, it's the scarcity of the talent of the labor that can go into creating something. And that is where the seeds of it were planted is like these objects are special because of the labor that went into them. And then as you, <laughs> yeah. you follow that narrative, you, it gets divorced from the labor and all of a sudden you're in ready-mades and so the Mm -hmm. the the value of the art is no longer attached to the labor that goes into it and so art objects end up in often their own sort of realm but in the history of it it's it's it is specifically that the labor that made it valuable, valuable to humans, because like the scarcity of the talent, the, the supply and the demand. Speaking speaking of labor, we, we live across the street from a a furniture shop, so they're they're doing something out there. So that's what that banging was. But um, so yeah, I guess it's just it's just sort of interesting to me the the way that. Uh, Art, art, sort of in the beginning of of what we start to begin to think of as 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 contemporary art is attached to the labor in the same way that a cabinet would be. Like this cabinet is more valuable than that cabinet because it has carvings on it, and the carvings took more time and more labor. You know that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then yeah. we sort of divorce from it. And then in, within your work, it's you're you're almost like um, wedding the labor back to the art object in a way that I really love and find quite interesting um, theoretically and, and philosophically as well that it's it, it's uh, it's in there and then it's also the you know the end product is so different than what we would see 600 years ago in terms of the way the labor mm-hmm. presents itself as well yeah oh thanks yeah I mean it's it's, it's something that's always in my back of my brain and it's something that I, I I'm, I'm excited for the new work to come out and eventually whenever it does yeah <laughs> But it's it's gonna be. It's, I think I'm really gonna. Uh, it's gonna be even far more in, intensive with it. Mm. So it's gonna be. It's, it's. I think it's gonna be jarring to some, mm. but I think it's beautiful to me. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's when you're talking about that kind of that darkness as well. It reminds me of. So I'm. I'm not a printmaker. This is. This is the the open secret. You know. I'm a. I'm a print. <laughs> I'm a hanger on. You know. I'm a print groupie and enthusiast and historian <laughs> and, and I've made one really like one proper print in my entire life and it was a lino cut and uh, my husband, the editor of the podcast, Tim, he has done huge scale relief cuts um, in his life. And so he's, he's helping me, you know, design and carve the block. I'm like, well, how do I get this texture? How do I get that texture? And he'd be like, okay, like this. And, you know, you want to like use, hold the tool like this and, you know, use it at this angle if you want that texture, et cetera, et cetera, you know, making it like this and that. And then I finally asked him, I was like, okay, so you, how do you do this? You do that. How do you do this? You do that. And then I was like, and then how do you keep your back from hurting? And he was like, if you figure <laughs> that out, you tell me, you know? Yeah. If you figure that out, there'll be so many printmakers who will give you money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, will, we, can, we, will, we will make a million, right? If you figure yeah, that out. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that as well, is that, is that the, um, the actual toll that it takes on human bodies is, is mm-hmm. real, 
is 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 very real and um, is something that again I don't think gets talked about much. Yeah, interestingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I, I've always dreamed of making a uh, print centric exercise video. <laughs> Like, I like you know, it. spandex and 80s style yeah. with like headbands and everything. Like, I would just love to, like, I mean, I, I keep on threatening myself every year I'm going to do this for my, my students. I'm going to make a, a yep. uh, on-VHS mm-hmm. exercise video where they have to, like, watch it before every <laughs> class. I, I love it. I mean, you know, there's, like, there's like the, the yoga for runners, right? There's the, mm-hmm. you know uh, – like Pilates for desk workers, and yeah, you can have the uh, the workout for printmakers now. I think that's <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah. So um, I want to make sure that we get a chance for you to kind of talk about a new venture, and I think it it's something that is maybe pretty fitting, actually, in the context we were just speaking of, in terms of mm-hmm. the actual physicality of making, and that is that you have decided to take on in a pandemic um, making printing presses or, t- or tabletop printing presses. Um, yeah. And as it was explained to me, like specifically to help people who don't have access to studios right now and, and may not still for a while as uh, as our pandemic rages on. So I know that you're going to, uh, you know, Tim has said, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm going to ask him about this in shop talk. Don't take all my questions, but <laughs> but I I'd love to hear um, the bit of how that decision came to be, and then um, you know how did you go from the conception to the actual getting them out in the world? Uh, yeah, it's it's I I I must preface this by saying uh, to everybody. Doing this during a pandemic is the worst time in the world to do this because <laughs> <laughs> the Would supply chains alone yeah. <laughs> are insane. It's insane. Um, no, it's it, it came out by, I think, three, maybe four things all colliding at once. The first one was I've always wanted to make my own press. Mm. Um I, have, I, I, I spoke earlier. I have a mechanical engineering. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a failed mechanical engineer. I'm like three credits shy of actually being able to be a practicing mechanical engineer. So I'm kind of like this sort of like failed engineer. But I've always wanted to make a press, and um, so that was always in the, the the lizard part of my brain. And then the pandemic happened, and I was. Right when the pandemic happened, a few months before that, I was starting to make a press for a specific project where I'm laminating paper to make mm-hmm. uh, like 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 extreme plywood out of paper for a future project. And so I was making that piece. I was just literally making the press that would be a sculptural piece within the project itself. And uh, I was I was looking. I was like, oh, this could be a, this could be actually be a printmaking press. I just have to change a few things out. Blah blah blah. And I was posting some images online on Instagram on stories, and I had some friends back home who in the states were like, Mitch, are you making a press, a printmaking press? I'm like, uh, kind of, yeah. like, <laughs> you know. And it's like, well, if you're making one, I'll buy one. I'm like, uh, this is you know pre-pandemic. So I was like, okay, um, this is how much it's going to cost, I think. And and then I, I just made one or two, and then I made, and then someone found out about it, and then I made a couple more, and then with no advertising, mm-hmm. and then because they know how OCD I am, <laughs> and um, so like that's 
I guess I should it should be called OCE. So it's like you know obsessive compulsive enhancement versus uh, you know <laughs> than anything. But yeah, so it's so that happened, and then the uh, pandemic happened, and mm-hmm. at the time there's two things. Uh, there was time that I I had to have a spinal surgery, and um, I was like I was laid up, so mm-hmm. I couldn't. It was like right before the lockdown happened, and um, so I needed to do physiotherapy, and there's no physiotherapy um, allowed at the hospitals at the time because all the hospitals shut down for COVID patients. So I had to like basically teach myself how to walk and do everything again. So physical activity became super important for me to just be able to stand and walk and lift and so on. So the simple tasks of just like making small parts became really important, whatever those parts may be. So I figured oh, I could just do that. And then I was at the same time, I was getting like this crazy convergence, if you will. I had all the, uh, I would check my email and I had all these emails from students mm. and staff like freaking out, like, how do we do prints at yeah. home? How do we, we don't have presses? Because if you're not a printmaker, you don't really realize that the press is kind of like the community campfire. Like yeah, it's what gathers everybody that. together. So I, so a, a, a bunch of professors and a few um, technicians from different universities all sort of got online, sort of talking to each other and trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to reinvent the wheel, if you will. Um, and obviously we realized that potato prints are going to get really old really fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and depending on what location, you, what, what country you're in, what province or state or wherever, like the, 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 the lockdowns are more extreme than others. So, and, and so I had suggested like, well, every university has, you know, tech shops, like machine shops or wood shops or whatever for sculpture or for engineering, whatever. And they're, and by OSHA rules or in, in or in the United States, but candidates win us. Uh, they have to be separated away from each other by a certain distance for safety. And that's more than two meters. Typically, it's like four meters. Um, so I was like, well, what if we just like, I just like, you know, maybe it was the, the medication I was on. So like, what, what if we just start <laughs> making presses? We can actually like pay the students who are freaking out about money because they don't have, they can't, they don't, they've lost their jobs. They need to make rent. And like, we can pay them. It's so, it's like extremely socially distanced. They can learn how to do that and blah, 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 you know? And it kind of went on deaf ears. Like, you know, everybody's like, that's too much work. No one knows how to do that and all that. Uh, Timelines are restricted, blah, blah, blah. Or the, the buildings won't last it enter i mean it was it was a number of uh, reasons when i was like well i have in my mind i said i just in my mind i have a metal shop in my own studio i have a, a, a milling machine a lathe i have everything i need to do this it's like well i've been making them i'll just start making them yeah uh, because i also need to start getting physically better so that's that was sort of like this weird convergence where i just like i'll just start making them and if if Especially in Canada, because we don't have any press companies here to make presses. Uh, we, everybody has oh, to buy them out of the United States. Yeah, so if you buy one, you know, uh, if you buy a brand new press in Canada, you have to buy it from the states, which uh-huh. then it's you, you have to do the conversion rate, you know, Canadian to U.S. dollar. And then you have to do the you have to do the transport, you have to do the international shipping, you have to do the duties, you have to do the taxes. Yeah, and what would normally be like a let's say a $5,000 or a $10,000 or a $30,000 press in the United States, all of a sudden it comes into like uh, that 
that $6,000 press turns into like $14,000 or more, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing it because I'm stubborn as hell, like my mom (laughs) and, and someone's, and also someone's, and a lot of people also told me, uh, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Like, what about your art practice? What about uh-huh. this? And like, I, in my in my mind, because I've raised my mom, it's just like, well, fuck you, I'm gonna do it now, even more more than ever. Right, right. So, yeah. so that was my that was sort of the impetus of it. So, like, as soon as people said no, you shouldn't do it, I just was like, okay, I'm really doing it now. And uh, so that was sort of the beginning of it. And from there, I wanted to make it so that there. Um, very affordable, that they are solid steel, that they will outlive the person. They look, they, they take visual cues from Chicago, from like the L train. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like they're, and they like, they'll print anything. Like they'll print a photogravure to a emboss a leaf onto a piece of paper. Like, I mean, everything. So yeah. Um, over, I over-engineered them just for, as a mental game uh-huh. because you're, you're bored yep. <laughs> and there's nothing else to do. So yeah, so that's kind of what happened with it. And then from there, it just, I, I just put it, I, I put it out word of mouth and I just started, I just, I, I, I posted on Instagram that I'm making presses and then people were like, I'll buy one. I'll buy one. I was like, mm. okay. And then, and then I, I started uh, its own individual Instagram sites, which then got more attention. Then I started and I published a website. And then, um, but before all that, when I was just doing the design phases of the presses before I even built the ones I have now, uh, before I even came up with the, the final design, I was like using the opportunities of the, the uh, to the money I was making off the, the individual presses of the out selling to the states. I was using that money to be able to give to students to like help help them pay rent because so, yeah. they were helping me do 3D auto design and uh, CAD work and so on. So it, it would help them a little bit here and there for food or whatever. Yeah. And um, just because like I mean I'm not a dad, um, but like as soon as you see all the emails from students who are kind of your children in a way, you know, like you, cause they're all the stress and it's like, you got to do something. And so I just did something yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So now in these presses. <laughs> no, it's, it's an amazing story. Cause it's, it just seems like it is a combination of, you know, just being interested in the challenge, needing it in the world, needing it physically for yourself, the, you know, the, the movement from the recovery from surgery, um, and then just, you know, sheer stubbornness <laughs> from being told, <laughs> you can't do that, um, which is so, it's so interesting because I, I, I completely know that that voice, you know, that person who would look at something like a printing press and just not be able to conceive of being able to create it. And so they kind of assume that you can't. Does that make sense? You know, yeah. and again, yeah. it's, oh, yeah. it's it's so interesting because I think it can tie back really well conceptually to the idea of, of invisible labor because you look at mm-hmm. a printing press and you're like, well, I can't even imagine how that's created because we're well, so detached, yeah. right, from the labor that, that happens. And so they, they just are like, well, 
no one, no one could figure out how to do that. When really, like, while it's a very precise machine, it's sort of a simple machine, I would guess. Um, and yeah. it's really about, you know, getting the precision and the balance that would be the sticky wicket. But in terms of how it works, it's a, it's something that turns over something that's flat, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's basically basically it's it's a um, a principal game of parallel and perpendicular. It's all it is, mm. and after that, it's, it comes down to pressure. Um, but I mean, it's it was. I mean, I don't know. It was uh, it, when people were saying you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, or whatever. The one thing, the one voice that kept on coming back in my head was when I was a kid. My mom would always tell me. That it's like when people say that it's not that it can't be done. It's because they either cannot or will not mm-hmm. do it, mm-hmm. and don't be that person. Yeah. So and I was like, okay, that my mom's always sort of like in that back of my head, sort of like you know, just be like, always do what your mom says, type yeah. thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, mama knows so, yeah. best. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, oh yeah. That's wonderful. Well, why don't you, we can kind of close up because we're getting to our our hour recording mark here. So why don't Mm -hmm. you please let people know where they can see these presses because they are really beautiful I have to say like I thank you yeah you can tell that that they you know they look um, precise and they look look like they uh, (laughs) say functional but that always sounds so like uh, (laughs) they look functional it always doesn't really sound like a compliment but you know they 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 look like very um, versatile little simple machines but they're also beautiful like you can tell that you took design and balance into consideration when making them as well so they're 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 lovely just to see so where can people see them um find them maybe even think about getting one for themselves where is all that found yeah uh find uh, one of three different locations one is either on the website mitchellpressworks.ca mm-hmm. um also uh mitchell slash uh, press slash works on Instagram or through my website, my own personal website, uh, Mitchell, uh, Mitch Mitchell art.com. So, uh, yeah, if anybody's ever got any questions about them, uh, I do the, the, the dreaded zoom calls. Uh, I'll have, have a <laughs> zoom call with them to sort of explain things. And oh, yeah. And then, um, yeah, so it's just, um, any questions whatsoever and then from there it makes it better I also note that for every 10 presses that I sell I actually donate one press uh, I, um, it's all out of my own pocket and everything mm. and with even shipping I donate a press to a an arts community in need in Canada That's so great. as a sort of a, a forward thank you to the community that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I love hearing stories of, of tabletop presses going out there into the world and, and hopefully inspiring, you know, someone who may not have access to printmaking otherwise, <laughs> lighting a spark. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. And, um, yeah. and I, 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 I do want to circle back to the beginning for, for a moment. It was, it was, it was Maddie Berger who uh, reached out to me. Ah. Yeah. And so I, I realized at the beginning when you were doing the introduction, I was like, oh, I didn't actually ask her if I can give her a shout out on air. And so um, I'll ask her and if, if, uh, if she says yes, yeah. we, we can leave this part in. So, so thank you, Maddie, for, um, for yeah, connecting thank you, Maddie. us. Maddie's great. 
Yeah. yeah. Maddie's been absolutely exceptional. She's one of my assistants in the, 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 the press business. And uh, she's a, a wonderful student at the Concordia. And she is phenomenal. She is absolutely a hard worker and just like a go-getter. Um, yeah, she's awesome. Awesome. Well, I think, yeah, I think if you follow uh, the Mitchell Press on Instagram, you'll see, yeah, pictures of, of Maddie in the shop. And I just, I think that's just wonderful. So, so thank you, Maddie, for bringing us together. It's been super fun to talk and pontificate on labor and the lightness and the darkness and um i'm glad that your that your kitties uh left your internet cord alone for our dog (laughs) (laughs) she's looking at it right now she's just like i want to play 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 (laughs) um but yeah and you're you're gonna stick around with us a little longer and and talk some shop with tim correct Yes, that's correct. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Mitch. And um, definitely, like, stay in touch. And uh, I hope that we can can work together more in the future. This was really fun to talk. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely fantastic and great to virtually meet you and and, uh, Tim as well. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Sofia Salazar. We'll talk about growing up in Argentina in an artistic family, her choice to move to the U.K., building up her career and brand to the point that she's now making a living off her art, growing her Instagram presence, and finding a balance in mental health while relying so much on social media to reach her audience. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.